Hey everyone, you're listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss how literature can help us think more deeply about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. I am your host, Jennifer Frey. I am an associate professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina. You can follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter at Jen Frey, and I'm on Instagram at Professor S. Frey. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter. Our handle is at Pod. In this episode, titled The Hellish Desires of Dante's Inferno, I speak with theologian Matthew Rothis Moser about why we should all be reading The Divine Comedy in 2021. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Sacred and Profane Love. I'm really excited tonight to be joined by Matthew Rothis Moser, who teaches in the Honors College at Pacific Azusa out in LA. He used to teach at Loyola University, Maryland. You were in the theology department, I believe. And he's the author of Love Itself is Understanding, Hans Urs von Balthasar's Theology of the Saints, and a forthcoming Dante and the Poetic Practice of Theology. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. Thanks for having me, Jen. I'm excited to be here. I'm super excited, but it's just really nice to get to talk to you. I, I guess I, I Twitter know you, right? Yeah. yeah. yeah That's how I, I know most people these days, it seems like. I know. <laughs> it's like sad, but also maybe wonderful. And Matt's a great Twitter follow, so obviously everyone should follow him there. But yeah, we, we Twitter know each other, and then you very graciously agreed to lead one of my Thomistic Institute reading groups here at the University of South Carolina on, um, I think it was... It was the end of was, Paradiso. That's right. Yeah, because I just felt I was getting totally out of my depth. <laughs> I was like, I, I need help, please. That was a fun day. It was awesome. And I learned a lot. And then I realized, obviously, you needed to come on the podcast. So we're actually going to do three. This is the first of three amazing episodes with Matt. So I'm so I'm really excited. But I just wanted to start off because I don't actually know myself. Like I said, I, I Twitter know you. I'm curious about your intellectual background and how you came to be writing books about Dante. Yeah, I, I was a theology major as an undergrad by accident. Uh, I, I had gone into undergrad thinking I would study psychology and ended up in a theology class, a theology of pain and suffering, which somehow changed my life, uh, saved my youthful faith, introduced me to the broader Christian tradition. And I've been a student of theology ever since. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, when I was doing my PhD, I... I studied Hans Urs von Balthasar, and von Balthasar showed me a way to do theology in a way that was was attuned to liturgy, that was attuned to spirituality, and that was attuned to, to literature. And then it was really when I started teaching that I had an opportunity to, to teach a great text class uh, at Baylor University, and I had planned out a, a, an entire syllabus of medieval great texts that were were all oriented to to and around Dante. And uh, then I got a different job and I wasn't able to teach that class. Ah. So I had to abandon my my syllabus, which was the last time I ever did a syllabus ahead of time. I learned my lesson. So you so you got your PhD at Baylor? 
I did. I got my PhD in religion at Baylor. Is religion like the stand-in for an actual theology department? Theology is uh, theology at Baylor is part of the religion department. So okay. the religion department is kind of a, a comprehensive over Old Testament, New Testament, church history, and theology. Okay. So my degree there is in religion, uh, even though I was part of the theology program. Okay, got it. And were you were you studying Dante or no? You were studying von Balthasar. I was studying von Balthasar uh, and uh, 20th century Catholic theology more broadly, uh, which would make sense at the largest Baptist institution in the world to to study 20th century Catholic. Theology yeah, well, there. apparently it's the it's the Notre Dame of Texas. Yes, that's that's the the aspiration at least. Uh, <laughs> But when I when I came to Loyola in Maryland, I had the opportunity to design a class called the Christian Imagination, and I decided that I was going to build that class around Dante, and that became my bread and butter class, and we read the entire Divine Comedy over about seven weeks, and then put it into conversation with various other figures. We do a unit on Nietzsche in conversation with Dante, which was very lively. Um, and, and so that's really where, where Dante became kind of the, the center of gravity for how I started thinking about theology more broadly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and so I, I must have taught that course and uh, upper level research seminar on, on Dante, you know, a, a dozen to 15 times over the course of my seven years at, at Loyola. Uh, so, so Dante just became a, a intellectual companion and and friend mm -hmm. uh, as I as I kind of continued to to do theological work, and um, and so then I, I finally decided that I was I was going to write this small little book on on Dante as a, a kind of theological resource that contemporary theology can can look back to and, and retrieve. Let's just kind of go over the basics and then the things that really matter for understanding um, this poem. So Dante's dates, two, uh, 1265 to 1321, uh, his, his life and his biography actually bear quite a bit on his work. Uh, he's, he's not one of those people who you can just read their work and not know anything about their biography and still really kind of grasp what's going on, which, which makes him uh, fairly interesting. Uh, he is a, a famous Italian poet. Uh, he was, was born and raised in the city of Florence and got involved in in Florentine politics after publishing a, a little work of poems, of love poems. That was his first career as a love poet. Uh, this book of poems called the Vita Nuova, The New Life, mm -hmm. and it won him acclaim. And even if, even if he, we didn't have the comedy, he would still probably be a well-known <clears throat> poet of that time period. These poems of the Vita Nuova were, were written about a somewhat mysterious woman named Beatrice, who is also a major character in the, the Divine Comedy. So yes, a series of, of love poems about a woman named Beatrice kind of made Dante's name. He ascended to become one of the, the major administrators and rulers over the city of Florence before he was betrayed 
and exiled in uh, 1302, and uh, he he was exiled from Florence under under pain of being burned alive. So is he like in his 30s when he was like, how old is he when he's exiled? So I guess he would be in his 30s. Yeah, yeah. kind of in his mid-30s. Was he with the Pope or not with the Pope? He was not with the Pope. He was not with that Pope. And, right. and indeed, I think Dante lays quite a bit of blame on the Pope, Pope Boniface, Boniface VIII. Yeah, for, who was not, not, a, not a good Pope, in my opinion. No, yes. There, there have probably been better popes uh, in the history of the church than, than Boniface, but hope my bias isn't showing there too much. Yeah, so Dante is, is exiled, and he never returns home to, to Florence. Does uh, he even he, try, or he just knows he can't? Well, his, the people that he, he's exiled with do, in fact, try. Uh, and and they're defeated, and then a little bit later they try again, and they're they're welcomed back into Florence under just incredibly humiliating circumstances. And Dante, whether it's through a mixture of of uh, integrity or pride, it's a very thin line for mm-hmm. uh, for Dante. I think uh, he he never makes the attempt. He hopes in in some ways that that the great poem of the comedy will win him. Uh, favor in Florence, and he'll be able to return. There's a, a very poignant moment towards the end of Paradiso where he longs to return back to to Florence and and be be crowned a poet by his city. But that never happens, and uh, he dies in in exile, and is is buried and is still buried in Ravenna, in yeah. Italy to this day. And I've I've heard a story. I'm not sure if it's apocryphal or not. That the the city of Florence is trying to get Dante's bones back. Yeah, from they are. But and I don't think Ravenna is going to do it. No, I think Ravenna, uh, quite rightly, is like you send him to us, so we're we're going to keep him. We're going to keep him. So uh, that's that's the life of Dante in a in a nutshell. He did have several children. Um, they they commented on on his work. His daughter became a nun, took the name of Beatrice. Uh, when she took her vows, which is quite interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Because Dante is, I mean, we, we have to talk about the unique character of Dante's love for Beatrice, but like, you know, he's married to this other woman, Gemma. Isn't her name Gemma? Gemma? Yeah. It is. Mm -hmm. And you know, they have a family and there's no indication that they're not happily married or, or anything like that, but he's basically in in love with someone else his entire life. And it's, I mean, it's a chaste love, but it's also sort of obsessive. I mean, uh, we, we should kind of talk about this love that he has for Beatrice because it's, because it's grounded or it's modeled, I guess, in a, in a certain tradition of thinking about love. So we should talk about that. The courtly love tradition. Yes. Which the correct me if I'm wrong, but the Vita Nuova is written in this courtly love tradition. Oh, very much so. Yes, very much so. And so there, there's there's a polemic that's going on in that book over the nature of love. Dante is has dedicated that book to his first friend, uh, a fellow named Guido Cavalcanti. Mm-hmm. Cavalcanti uh, was a mentor to Dante, a poetic mentor. 
But Cavalcanti said that love is destructive, that the overwhelming passion of love will come in and, and overcome your reason and, and, and uh, in some sense destroy you. And so in that sense, the love is, is quite a dangerous thing. And over the course of the Vita Nuova, Dante, who is the author and the character, has a, a bit of a, a growth. It's a, it's a kind of mini comedy. There's an infernal moment, a purgatorial moment, and then a, a, par a paradiso mo moment where Dante has to at first experience love as this terrible, overwhelming thing where he just sees Beatrice and, and she just... He's so moved that he weeps over her. He can't control himself. There's a moment uh, that she she doesn't greet him when they pass in the marketplace, and he's completely unmade by this. And it's very much part of the the tradition of pick a woman that that becomes the object of your praise and your love, and and then just write poems about how miserable she makes you. Yeah. <laughs> but also, wasn't he like nine? When he first has this, you know, when he first sees Beatrice, isn't he nine? Yes. Uh, yeah. And so Dante sees her, I think, at the, the ninth hour of the ninth day of the ninth month in when they're both nine years old. And so yeah. Dante always associates her with the number nine throughout yeah. all of the rest of his works. I mean, this, this blows my mind. I mean, look, I have four boys. And I have a 10 year old and a nine year old and the idea of them even paying attention to girls <laughs> alone being, you know, struck with love is absurd to me. I mean, they're just completely not interested. <laughs> struck with, well, but maybe that might get to, to what Dante sees is so significant in Beatrice, right? She is, she is just not some girl that he sees in the marketplace. This is in some ways, this is how Christ comes to him mm -hmm. as as Beatrice. Mm -hmm. uh, there there is a kind of divinity here mm -hmm. in the figure of Beatrice as he presents her in both the Vita Nuova and and the comedy. But she's this fascinating, fascinatingly mute character. She doesn't speak much at all, but but she has this incredible effect. On Dante, in some ways, she is kind of the unmoved mover of the Vita Nuova, if that's not uh, risking too much blasphemy. Uh, in it, so she's just kind of a, this consistent presence, and then Dante is going through this journey towards an understanding of both love and poetry. That love is not something that overwhelms reason, but can fulfill reason, and poetry doesn't have to be this this exposition of how how love overcomes you and love just ruins your life and, and the beauty of, of this woman will, will unmake you. Instead, uh, love and beauty become morally significant things. And so what poetry can then become, and he has this moment of conversion in Vita Nuova, poetry becomes a matter of praise. Mm -hmm. That's what language is for. Uh, he he realizes it's it's not to talk about your misery. It's not even to win fame. It is instead to praise the object of your love, mm -hmm. and you see him take those themes up and and mature them throughout the comedy. I think once once Beatrice comes back, so there is this growth 
to a, a chastened and I would say even even immaturely holy love over the course of the Vita Nuova than he then kind of grows and develops over the course of the, the comedy once Peter right. shows up again. So Beatrice dies like pretty young, I think. Yeah, 25. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. So is she already dead by the time he's writing Vita Nuova? I know she's dead by the time he's writing The Divine Comedy. Yeah, her death is is a major part of the Vita Nuova especially towards towards the end. He actually quotes the Book of Lamentations, uh, how lonely sits the city mm-hmm. that was once so full of people. And so yeah. F- Florence is now bereft of, of Beatrice. But he has, at the end of Vito Nuova, he has a vision of her in heaven, right, surrounded by, by the heavenly hosts in some ways. And, and he says, and so I resolved that I would would end this book and not write anything more of her until I can say of her what no man has ever been able to say about any woman. Right. And that's how, how the Vita Nuova ends. It ends in this kind of deliberately incomplete way. Uh, yeah. I mean, one thing that people, I mean, always ask, um, and, and I've, I've taught the divine comedy as well mm. though certainly not like you so i i taught the inferno as part of the university of chicago great books core human being and citizen and then i've done reading groups and i don't <clears throat> i don't claim to be an expert because i'm really not i'm just someone who really loves dante yeah and um yeah and just i'm always like every time i read him i get something else out of it you are not someone who just really loves dante. i'm just <laughs> a fan I'm a, I'm, I'm a fan and an evangelist that's all yeah. i am really all of my students are just like look how is this not adulterous mm-hmm. <laughs> this love for beatrice and we mm-hmm. might i mean it may be that we can't totally answer that now but um i'm sure you get this question all the time too oh yeah what if we set the stage for an answer that we can we can revisit? Okay, um, great. We've got uh, three whole episodes. Yeah. I'm just saying, at some point, we have to address this. Yes. <laughs> so I think that maybe what we could what we could begin to say is that one Dante's doing something literarily mm-hmm. that that he he's standing in this tradition and he is treating Beatrice the way that he should as a poet writing in this in this tradition. Uh, so that that might seem like kind of a deflection, but I do think it's important that that Dante is very intentional about his his poetry, about his art and how he presents his art and where he sticks with literary traditions and where he kind of stretches them and, and breaks them. The other thing that I think we can see and talk about more when we when we explore when Beatrice shows up in Purgatorio 30 is that Dante is aware, and I think acutely aware, that of, of the difference between a love and a desire that is idolatrous and a love and a desire that is holy. An idolatrous love will imprison one in in the in one's own ego, whereas a holy love is going to constantly be opening up and kind of pointing towards towards God, and and I think that's really his mature account of Beatrice is that Beatrice is is fundamentally a a sign, and almost 
maybe we could say an efficacious sign of of the holy of god mm -hmm. of christ mm -hmm. and so i think what my argument would be is that dante is not being he's not being idolatrous i think what he's doing is he's taking the word christian seriously with beatrice beatrice is a little christ for him mm -hmm. and so if that's his fundamental way of seeing her then i think that also at least sets up a, a possible solution to the idolatrous uh, kind of desire. Yes, but what about the adulterous? Yeah. <laughs> that's what, no, no, I mean, we can table it, but I just always get the same remark, especially for my female students, where it's like, well, if my husband spent his whole life writing love poetry to another woman, I have a lot mm -hmm. of questions for him. So anyway, but we'll... <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll table it because it's a it's a recurring uh yes. Beatrice is all throughout the divine comedy yeah so i think i would just set up that we have to think of beatrice in terms of christ and we can kind of spell that out more see if we can solve the the adulterous uh question i'm not sure that we'll be able to in a satisfactory way i think maybe we can only get hints but we'll see okay so the divine comedy so how old is he when he writes it? So he writes it uh, while he is in exile, maybe 1307, 1309 is when he starts. And then it's it's pretty much wrapped up the year before his death in 1320. Oh, so it takes him a long time. It takes him a, quite a long time. And is he writing it in Ravenna? Uh, parts of it, I think he's writing in Ravenna, but I mean, he's, he's moving around. Um, Quite a bit as as he's writing it and his exile is a, a kind of major plot point over the course of of the comedy which is set two years earlier than his actual exile in 1302. yeah so if he writes it just if he finishes it just before he dies then i'm guessing he doesn't know how it's really received and and how was it initially received? Like, it's obviously one of the most famous poems ever written now, but what was its initial reception? It was, it was widely received and widely praised almost immediately. Okay. So people it, recognized it was great. It was, it was getting line by line commentaries within one generation of his death. People following immediately after him, Boccaccio and, and folks like this take, take his, his poem very, very seriously. Uh, his his son contributed some some commentary to it, uh, but I I am pretty sure that Dante knew that this was going to be one of those books that mm -hmm. is always around. Mm -hmm. Why is it a comedy? Why why is it called the Divine Comedy? Um, and let's talk about the structure of the poem because it's really important. Yes, absolutely. So I think there are several different answers to the comedy question. Uh, one is just it's written in the low comic style, rather than rather than the the high tragic style. So just the literary commonplace language is that of of the the comic style. Uh, he, he's not writing he's not writing in the same language of uh, somebody like Virgil is. Mm -hmm. um, but then, of course, the the other understanding of comedy is is set in opposition to tragedy. Dante starts out at his lowest point, it, waking up in this dark wood, 
afraid, lost, and he ends at his highest point within the very life of, of God uh, in the imperial heaven. And so you get the trajectory of starting out at the lowest point and, and ending on your highest point, which is the opposite of tragedy, where you start off at this, this point of, of integration and then slowly disintegrate. Uh, so I think those are two of the major reasons why he calls it comedy. He doesn't call it divine comedy. That might even be a little too proud for Dante. Uh, that's a, the word divine is something that's affixed to it in the generation following Dante's life. He just calls it his comedy. So why, why do we keep that if it wasn't, if it wasn't his original intent? Why do we keep the title, the divine comedy? I think because I'm going to just totally project onto an entire literary and, and historical tradition. But I Go do for think it. People, uh, people recognize that, that there is something going on in this, in this text that does elevate it from, oh, this is just kind of a, a middle-of-the-road comedy, right? There, there is, both in its subject matter and then also in the, its kind of power, there is something divine going on here. So I think that might be one of those happy historical accidents that 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 sticks around because it, it says something true about the text at hand. Mm -hmm. Do you know at what point they started calling it the Divine Comedy? Was that also something that happened right away or was it much later? Yeah, it was within a generation, I believe. Okay. Okay. So in some yeah, sense. It was pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah. Quick. Um so let's talk about the structure, the way it's the way it's structured. Yes. So the best way to talk about how it's structured is to recognize that Dante loves threes. He loves the number three. Because of uh, the Trinity? Well, I think that's certainly the, the Trinity. There's also the, the medieval theological idea that, that creation is triadic. It's, it's set out in these kind of three main attributes. And so he, he sees creation as, as imaging imaging the the threefold character of God. Mm -hmm. And so he has his three cantica, his three songbooks. You have the Inferno, which is where Dante, the pilgrim, as he's called, Dante is the, the main character. He journeys, he's guided into hell, all the way through hell. And then you have the Purgatorio, where he's guided out of hell and up the mountain of Purgatory. And then you have the Paradiso, which is where Dante ascends, through the heavens, through all of uh, outer space until he slips outside of time and space altogether into the very life of God. Each of the, uh, each of the canticles, Inferno, Purgatorio, Paradiso, is divided into uh, cantos or songs. Each of them have 33 cantos, mm -hmm. uh, 33 obviously being Christ. Right, you have you have uh, the age of Christ's crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension at thirty-three, and so on a macro level, you have the Trinity, you have God, and you have Christ, just in the kind of numeric patterning of of the text. But hell can't image Christ perfectly in the same way that the regions of grace do. So Dante adds a canto mm -hmm. in hell. To yeah, there's, yeah, there's 34. So there's 34. Mm -hmm. So you have 34 plus 33 plus 33. Conveniently, 
that adds up to 100, which for, for Dante is the number of divine perfection. Mm. And so there's an interesting kind of uh, uh, theology of, of evil going on there, even in, in that. There is, there is hell can't image Christ because it is, it is a perversion of grace. It's a perversion of, of heaven. And yet somehow God can still incorporate hell into the grand mastery of, of divine perfection. So that is, that's the kind of macro picture. When you get into each of the cantos, Dante uses a, a poetic style called the terza rima, where you have the rhyme on, on every third line. And so you get clusters of three, three lines, each with 11 syllables. So on the, the uh, micro level, you get what are called tercets. You get threes, and each of the tercets have 11 syllables, so you have 33. Mm -hmm. So on both the macro and the micro level, you're getting this interplay of three and 33. Mm -hmm. He's just trying to, I think, in some sense, some sense kind of attune us to the, the music of God in Christ, mm -hmm. just through the, the patternings of, of his literary construction here. Do you know, is there anywhere where I can point my listeners to like an audio version of it and the original, like a really good recording where maybe they could hear what it sounds like in the original Florentine dialect? Uh, there are so many videos on YouTube. That yeah, but you which just, ones are good? Uh, <laughs> They're I, all I, fine. They're all they're all fine. Okay. Um, I have not found any that I that I'm like, oh, that was really really great. Okay. Uh, yeah. But but hearing the musicality of it really is, I mean, it really is kind of entrancing. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my favorite Dante scholars, a, a fellow at uh, King's College London now named Vittorio Montemaggi, he came to Loyola when I was there, and uh, he gave a lecture. And students asked him, you know, can you read, can you read some of this in the Italian? Because if I tried to read it to them in the Italian, it would sound German. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and he just, he just quoted it right from memory. And the whole room of about 105 students were just utterly transfixed by it. So there, there is a, a kind of beautiful musicality in the language. One thing that really strikes me and I think is unfortunate is that if people have read Dante's Divine Comedy, they've usually only read the Inferno. Yes. I don't know why that is exactly, but it's, it's definitely a thing. Well, I mean, for example, in the UChicago core, they, they only teach the Inferno, right? You got to move mm -hmm. on. And I think that's too bad because the Inferno, while great, is my least favorite one. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I really, I personally, my favorite's the Purgatorio. I love Purgatory. It's fantastic. Mm -hmm. I'm right there with you. Oh, is it your favorite too? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, Purgatory mm -hmm. is amazing. I don't yeah. know why everyone teaches the Inferno. Like it's great, but come on, <laughs> it gets better. I think there people think that one, you can't start in the middle. You can't start with Purgatory. Okay. I don't know. Uh, I'm not sold on that, but yeah. 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 I don't know that I'm sold on that either, but I think also there people just don't trust they just don't trust Dante as an author. Mm. I think they think, oh, well, hell is, you know, a little transgressive and it's gory and it's exciting. 
It is gory. Holiness is boring. Goodness is boring. Oh, I see. And I'm like, oh, gosh, that's just, especially with purgatory, that is just not the case. I mean, purgatory is just as adventurous. And it's I think just it's as gory. Some... No, it's actually it's... not just as gory. But... Well, there's a couple of pretty gory parts, I would say. Uh, the envious. Um, yes, envious. but it's so hopeful. It is um... so hopeful. And, uh, and but Inferno, it just takes you, I, I mean, it just beats you down to this point of despair. Mm-hmm. Until you have the kind of turn, just in the last couple of lines. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I would always ask my students if if they had read Dante before, and a couple of them would raise their hands, and, and then I would say, how many of you have only read The Inferno? And that, that would be it. It would be a one-to-one mm-hmm. correspondence. And so then I would tell them, well, then you haven't read Dante because yeah. if you only read the inferno you think this is an angry dude who just is it's just a revenge story where he's just punishing his enemies he's cruel look at how awful medieval christians were you know it leaves you with that kind of taste and then you cross into purgatory and it's just this cascade of grace and mercy mm-hmm I never thought about that, but maybe people like it because it confirms their priors, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, About medieval Christianity. Yeah. That makes a certain kind of sense. Okay. So let's, let's, are we, are we ready to jump in? I am always ready. Let's do it. All right. So Canto One, as you said, you know, midway along the journey of our life, I woke to find myself in a dark wood for I had wandered from the straight path. Right. Uh, very, very famous <laughs> opening. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. So he's like in this dark woods by himself. He's scared. What's going on? And then he meets these three beasts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what's 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 up with these three beasts? We have the leopard, the leopard, the lion and the she wolf. Yeah. And so what do those symbolize? I don't think any I don't think there is any agreement on that. I don't well, think there's do any agreement. So I like that they correspond to the different regions of Dante's hell. Yeah. You get these, these again, threes, these three separate regions of how Dante categorizes sin in the Inferno. And so I, I, I like the idea that he's anticipating that here. Uh, however, it gets complicated because he does describe the, the she-wolf uh, in the same language that he treats, that that he describes the sin of avarice, and so some some people are saying that perhaps these are specific sins that mm. that he's identifying, uh, and perhaps they're Dante's specific sins. What are the sins that that have imprisoned him in this dark wood? So there's. Uh, I mean, as with anything in Dante studies, you get two Dante scholars together and you have three opinions. There's all kinds of different arguments going on here. I personally like the the idea that they are anticipating the structure of hell. Yeah, so that's always what I thought. I think that's Musa's line. So, it so is Musa, yeah. Yeah, so mm-hmm. I really like Mark Musa just because... I went to Indiana University, and so that's, um, you know, that was the big Dante guy there. So he's mm-hmm. just my guy. 
and I grew up on the Musa translation. Mm -hmm. So it's, so it's, it's, it's always with me and in that sense, um, because it's how I fell in love with Dante. So anyway, so let's, let's go with that interpretation because I also like it and there's a lot of evidence for it. So then, so then if we think about the geography of hell, right? Like Dante's obviously starting off at the top and then he's working his way down. Like, you know, he's like going down into a pit yeah. and at the very bottom of the pit is Satan. And that's mm -hmm. like the worst part. You really, I mean, you don't want to be in hell, but you really don't want to be in the bottom of hell because the, 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 the further down in the pit you go, like the worse off you are yes. um, in terms of whatever, you know, the eternal punishment is or the contrapazzo. But hell itself has, like you said, these three divisions. So if we think of the first division as symbolized by the leopard, what are those kinds of sins? So those would be, I think Musa calls them the, the sins of incontinence, mm -hmm. right? Bodily sins, sins of, of desire, ones that don't necessarily involve your, the exercise of your will or your reason. So you have, you have lust, you, you have gluttony, you have uh, uh, hoarding, uh, kind of avaricious stuff and you have wrath. And so these seem to be the sins that, that just kind of come, come on you. They, they, it's your passions getting mm -hmm. the better of you. Mm -hmm. Their sense of intemperance. Yes. According intemperance. to St. Thomas. Yes. Right. So then the lion that corresponds to what region of hell? So then uh, the next stage down, you get sins of violence. This always scandalizes my students because they think sins of violence would be the, those have to be the worst sins. Mm. But for, for Dante, they're not. Um, they are in the middle. These are sins that kind of build on, or that's the whole idea of, of Dante's hell is these sins compound on each other. Mm -hmm. right? The deeper down you get, the more comprehensive the corruption of the human person. Mm-hmm. So these sins of violence take the passions, but then filter them through the exercise of the will. Mm -hmm. And you get different forms of violence. You get violence against, against others, you get violence against yourself, and then you get uh, violence about against God, nature, and art. After the sins of violence, we have malice, right? Yes. So you have uh, sins, of, sins of fraud, really. Uh, and there's two types of fraud for Dante. There's, I think, what Musa calls simple fraud, which is fraud that doesn't exploit pre-existing relationships. Mm -hmm. So uh, theft and uh, uh, simony and, and things like that. And then at the very bottom of hell, where Satan is, where, where you get, you get uh, the worst sinners, is complex fraud, uh, and this is this is treachery. I would mm -hmm. say it's traitors. And these are these are the people that use their reason, their God-given gift of reason, through which they could attain to the intellectual knowledge of God, mm -hmm. and they use that capacity and the twistedness of their will mm -hmm. and their passions to do violence and to to betray. Sorry, because I have a really scholastic reading of this poem. But yeah, I mean, if you think about 
how Thomas thinks about sin, Thomas Mm -hmm. Aquinas. He thinks, you know, sins of weakness or sins of incontinence are bad, but they're less voluntary. Like they're bad, they're sins, but they're not as bad as other types of sins. And the reason why is that the person who's merely incontinent, like their minds haven't been corrupted. So they Mm -hmm. know that what they do is wrong. This is why Mm -hmm. I love Francesco and Paolo so so much. Mm -hmm. So it's not like... Mm It's not like they're confused, you know, I mean, they know that it's wrong, but they're just kind of overcome by a passion. So they get swept away in a passion and then they do something wrong. And then if they had time to reflect on it, like they would regret what they did, you know, they would feel regret. What So once the, once the passion goes away. So Thomas's favorite example of this is from the Bible when Peter denies Christ, right? So Peter is just overcome by fear and he denies Christ. But as soon as the mob is no longer threatening his life, he goes outside and weeps, right? Mm-hmm. He's like, oh man, I'm, I'm a jerk. <laughs> like he sees, you know, he sees clearly again because he knows that he should be loyal to Christ. Right. It's just that he gets overcome by fear. And like, that's just something that happens to human beings. And of course it's a sin, but like, it's a very different thing from malice. Also because incontinence is not a defect of the will. Right. It's a right. defect of your passions. Right. Malice is a defect of the will. It's when you have mm-hmm. a bad will, mm-hmm. right? So you know that what you're doing is wrong and you don't care, mm-hmm. right? And that he thinks is not only possible, but really a very bad condition for a human being to get him or herself into, um, where you get to the point where you just don't even care that it's wrong. So if you look at it from that theological angle, it definitely makes sense why Mm -hmm. he wants to put sense of malice in particular. Now you might question, and I definitely question, which particular sense he throws down there. And also there's just the fact that for Aquinas, any sin could be a sin of incontinence, although certain sins are more likely to be sins of incontinence. Mm-hmm. And things that look like sins of incontinence can be done with malice, right? Mm-hmm. So there's mm-hmm. like the kind of adulterer that's like swept away. Right. And then there's the kind that's like seducing, who's like intentionally seducing for some reason, right? Right. right. So, um, so yeah, just to point that out but anyway well your your example of of peter weeping after the mob goes is is a nice contrast to dante at the the bottom of hell where he's on the the coxus river which is the river of lamentation but it's frozen shut it's cold and i'm sure we'll talk about that more in a minute but uh he encounters all of these people who are trying to weep for their sins, trying, quote unquote, to weep for their sins. But the moment the the tears come out, it freezes in their eyes. And Dante has this haunting line where he says, their weeping prevents weeping. Mm-hmm. So there is this fundamental inability to repent. That's and that right. seems to be a kind of uh, defining characteristic, the deeper you go into hell, the, the, the more unable you are because, because this, the sin has, as in a sense, killed your soul. So back to Canto one. So there are three figures in Canto one. There's obviously mm-hmm. Dante, this guy who's lost and confronted by these horrible beasts, which are either his sins or types of sins, but at any rate, the beasts are sins. <laughs> But then there's um, there's a man that comes to him and a woman that comes to him. 
So the man that comes to him is is our boy Virgil. Virgil, yes, good old so, Virgil. Yeah. So this is also something that tends to throw students off. Yes. Why on earth would a medieval Christian poet take a pagan as his guide to heaven? What's going on there? Very confusing. You know, I get that he's a poet, but it's still something seems wrong there. So why Virgil as a guide? Yeah. I, so Robert Hollander suggests that that in real life, Dante was reading Virgil in exile. Uh-huh. And Virgil helped kind of bring him back to poetry. And so what we see reflected in the poem is a, is a kind of imaginative interpretation of what happened in, in Dante's own life. Um, which I think is is an interesting idea, but what what Virgil kind of stands for 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 Dante is is somebody whose poetry is also a kind of prophecy. Uh, Virgil is is taken in Dante's day as prophesying the the coming of Christ. Uh, and why and, is that? Uh, so it's in one of Virgil's lesser-known writings. Um, it's, so it's not in the the Aeneid, but but Virgil has this kind of throwaway line where he talks about uh, about justice being born among us, and and that was taken as a kind of pagan foreshadowing of of the nativity of Christ. And so I think Dante, even though in in another book, Monarchia says Vir- Virgil wasn't talking about the incarnation. Mm-hmm. In this text, he really seems to to present Virgil as as somebody who can lead lead people to Christian salvation, even if he's not able to attain that salvation for himself. He describes Virgil as somebody who who lights the path for those who follow him but is himself walking in darkness. He talks about that in Purgatorio. So I think Virgil is, is for him a kind of pagan, uh, a, a pagan father, uh, uh, certainly a, a master in the, the art of poetry, but Virgil is first and foremost his teacher. And Dante looks to Virgil to teach him about, about morality and about the path to happiness. And it's a path that Virgil doesn't know the entire way to happiness, but he knows a a little bit of the way. And he is a, he's a reliable and loving and nurturing father to, to Dante. Yeah. I mean, I always talk about how, you know, I mean, I always use the example of Aquinas with my students and Mm -hmm. I say, look, you know, Aquinas in some sense took one of his main teachers to be Aristotle who was a pagan philosopher who certainly not Christian, um, doesn't have a doctrine of grace, thinks the world is eternal. And, uh, and you know, it kind of actually got Aquinas into some real hot water in Paris. But, sure did, right? And, and, and even, I mean, you could go back and, and talk about Augustine and, and Plato or, or, or the Neoplatonists. So I think there's always been in Christian theology this um, tradition of, of looking back to to the pagans as as wise right Mm -hmm. as as wise guy wise guys (laughs) (laughs) wise guys uh you know sources of of wisdom um now obviously they all thought that 
they were missing something, namely revelation and grace. Mm -hmm. But um, that was no reason to not um, see them as guides in in some Mm -hmm. very robust, significant sense. And then the other person that I was thinking about, um, so, so when Virgil comes, he tells Dante that he's been sent by someone. Right. So this is in Canto 2, but uh, Virgil is, is greeted in, in hell. So Virgil is in limbo in hell among the virtuous pagans, which is kind of, I describe it as, as the kind of suburbs of the city of hell. Right. Yeah. Uh, and Beatrice comes down from heaven to to Virgil and gives Virgil a vocation. Mm-hmm. And the vocation is to go and find the pilgrim Dante in the dark wood and to bring Dante to, to her, to Beatrice. Mm-hmm. And at this point, we don't know where Beatrice is mm-hmm. and how long it's going to be until we meet her. But Virgil is meant to to guide Dante through hell, in a sense to kind of shock him into some moral sense, and then prepare him to meet Beatrice, who will kind of take him on and and send take him uh, to the completion of his journey. What's often overlooked is that Beatrice doesn't come of her own accord. She is sent by St. Lucy. Sent. She is sent, yes. Right. She's sent by St. Lucy, who's Dante's patron saint, and also, uh, I believe, patron saint of those with bad eyes, if I'm getting that correct. Oh, who knows? There are so uh, many. I, Yeah. But I do think that's that's telling, because Dante does wake up in this dark wood, this Silva Obscura, right? There's He has bad eyes, and so he needs the intervention of his patron saint. And then Lucy is herself sent by Mary, who Dante describes as the font of all Christian hope and compassion. Mm-hmm. So, well, yeah, I like that a lot because you know this 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 whole um, I guess like metaphor of thinking of grace in terms of vision, especially in terms of like clarifying your vision. So if the whole thing is to help. Dante see clearly and that that is the work of grace mm-hmm. in some really significant sense because of course the whole the whole thing right is ordered towards his perfection as a human being which Absolutely. is to see god right it is the beatific vision yeah yeah mm-hmm. so so this whole idea of having bad eyes in the beginning mm-hmm. is really like a like a metaphor for um for being in a state of sin, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, being in a state where you're literally not able to see God mm-hmm. and that you need this purifying action of grace to clear your eyes. So I like that a lot. Um, and I, I actually never made that connection before with St. Lucy. So, so that's helpful. Thank you. We wanted to talk about Canto Three, which is very famous because it's like, like you said, you know, limbo is where all the virtuous pagans are. And like, you know, you don't want to be in limbo, but it, it doesn't really seem that bad. <laughs> it's a garden party talking yeah. about poetry and philosophy. Yeah. Like, I remember when I first read The Divine Comedy, I was like, 
I don't know. I might just want to be in limbo hanging out with Aristotle. <laughs> like, that sounds kind of rad. It was a very impious reaction, but it just was my honest reaction. I was like, yeah. I, I don't know. It just doesn't seem that bad. You know, I like at some point, I think Dante is like, oh, they're sad. But they, you know. <laughs> right. They're they're suspended, right? They yeah. They live in desire without the hope of ever having that desire fulfilled. Yeah. I don't know. So basically, it's like just an extension of earthly existence. Yeah, exactly. Really, they're right? Just, they're just still philosophers, but they're all hanging out together. And not just philosophers. Like, isn't Homer there? Yeah, there's there's a, a coterie of philosophers and a coterie of poets. Yeah. Um, there are also unbaptized babies, which That's tends right. to set my students a, a, a bit of flame with, with some frustration. Yeah. Um, but then in Canto 3, it's like we really get to hell, and mm -hmm. there are um, the gates of hell, which right. I think most people, if they think about the gates of hell, they don't necessarily think about Dante, but they think about Rodin, and they think about yeah. his really famous sculpture. But right. um, what's important about the gates of hell? So I think several things. Uh, I think one of the most important things that it says is uh, that it was justice that led God to create hell. Mm -hmm. And so that sets the stage with for everything that follows in the entire inferno. It's all done in the context of, oh wait, this is divine justice that we're seeing playing out here. Because Dante will, and I'm sure we'll talk about Francesca here in a minute, Dante gives us incredibly compelling and tragic characters in hell yeah. that really move us. Yeah. And Dante does not moralize. He trusts his audience, maybe a little too much, to remember, no, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what these people say or how wonderful or compassionate or heroic they are, it's still just that they're there. And he leaves it to us as readers to puzzle it out. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, that's an important thing that's stated by the gate. But then also that it's hell is created by uh, divine power, wisdom, and love. So there's this invocation of, of the Trinity. And then the last thing is uh, Canto 3, line 9, you know, the, the iconic line, abandon every hope, all ye who enter here, yeah. which yeah. I actually have a doormat that says that here at my office door um, <laughs> that, I, that I got from a student. Yeah, that's uh, fantastic. Yeah, I'll just read. So I, I have the Muso translation. I don't yeah, know if it's great. the best, but... So when I like, I am the way into the doleful city. I am the way into eternal grief. I am the way to a forsaken race. Just as it was that moved my great creator, divine omnipotence created me and highest wisdom joined with primal love. Before me, nothing but eternal things were made and I shall last eternally abandon every hope, all you who enter. It's very striking. Just the idea, abandon all hope. Yeah. Like this it, is a place of despair. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh the gentleman that I mentioned earlier, Vittorio Montemaggi, in his book, he makes the argument, which I found found very interesting, is that in the Italian you can translate that last line in the indicative mood. All who enter here have abandoned hope. Yeah. So it's less of a command and more of a statement. Mm -hmm. And and that in some ways kind of changes 
at least for me, it changes my experience as I enter into hell with, with mm-hmm. the pilgrim. Yeah. Like are, are these people that are, are, uh, are, are meant to be pitied in some ways? Is there any compassion that we can show towards, towards these people? Is, is their despair the ultimate tragedy mm-hmm. or, or not? And so it, it makes, it makes hell a little bit more, uh, morally complex knowing that it could be translated other ways. Yeah. And it's also just from the perspective of moral theology, you know, if you're in a state of mortal sin, then you are without hope, strictly speaking. That is to say you are without the virtue of hope because the virtue of hope is a theological virtue and takes grace. And when you commit a mortal sin, you don't have any grace in your soul anymore. Mm -hmm. So, or at least that's the Catholic view. I think there's a lot of theology in there as well. Um, about, because, because really, well, I mean, this is what I always say to to my students when I teach the divine comedy. Um, and most of the time when I teach the divine comedy, so I, I taught the divine comedy in Florence with, um, you know, it was so unbelievably amazing. But anyway, um, I was with university of South Carolina honors college students. And that wasn't the first time I taught it in a totally secular environment. And, you know, when, when you're Catholic and you're teaching something very Catholic in a, in a Mm -hmm. secular environment, you know, you're always kind of like trying to tell this story, you're like walking on eggshells and trying to tell this story about why non-Catholics should be interested in this, should be reading Mm it. And, um, so I always tell my students that, look, the, the, the best way into this to like understand this isn't to think of it literally, although you do have to think of it literally in order to get anywhere, but so don't, don't think of it literally as a place where these things are happening, although Mm -hmm. it is literally a place where these things are happening, but that's not what's interesting about it. That really what Dante is trying to convey is what these people's souls are like. Right. And so, so when we, when we look at um, the geography of hell, and we also look at the particular re- um, regions of hell and what those regions are like. And then also, <laughs> if we look at the contrapasso or the mm-hmm. particular kind of punishment that the person yep. is suffering, their specific suffering is supposed to tell us something about the state of their soul when Absolutely. they died. You know, and the nature of their of and the, the nature of the yeah. sin, and yeah. so it's like a poem trying to explain human sin to you, right? Mm-hmm. And that where I'm like, look, where sin is on some level doing bad stuff, right? right? Like bad action, right. don't do yeah. that. And yeah, so do you do you agree with that? I I absolutely do. I describe Dante's Dante's entire comedy as an autopsy of the soul. Yeah. but in different states. And you know, there's this letter that that people argue over whether Dante wrote it or not. But if Dante did write it, he says the allegorical meaning of the text is it's the state of the soul at, in damnation, in purgation, and in blessedness. Yeah. And so I think that's absolutely right. A colleague of mine at Loyola said, in, the inferno is a morgue. Mm-hmm. And the pilgrim is is trying to see what killed the soul. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. So at the gates of hell, is there anything else about Canto 3 that you want to talk about? Well, I think one of the 
the just nice little touches that Dante does is he ends each part of the comedy, Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso, with the word stars. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Stars for him are are where where the human eye and the divine eye meet, right? The divine eye looking down, the human eye looking up in contemplation, the stars and the circling of the stars are what draw us up to contemplation of of eternal things. And one of the the lines that I I disagree with Musa's translation just slightly mm-hmm. is in in Inferno three. He uh, Dante encounters one of the many uh, mythological creatures in in hell, uh, and this mythological creature Charon he is saying to the damned, "Give up hope, abandon hope." of ever seen heaven, it's line 85. Mm-hmm. And in the Italian, that's uh, that's cielo, and I've seen some people translate that as the sky. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a very, a very helpful translation because literally as you're going into hell, you're going underground and you are being cut off from the sky, from the very thing that that is meant to, to draw our attention up to, to eternal things. And so as Dante's journey continues through hell and he finally makes his way out, it it's a return to being able to see the stars. And so there's something about, about Dante's understanding of damnation that is cut off from being able to, to contemplate, being able to look up into the stars to, to behold the, the eternal things. And so hell is a kind of diminishment and a shrinking of the human person. Right, uh, because so, contemplation is our highest good. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so what about what about the philosophers though? What about the virtuous pagans in limbo? Can they see the stars? I think it's all I think it's all underground for them. Okay, because that that okay. Yeah. I could see that as definitely being a like if they like if you're a philosopher and you can't really contemplate, that's that's rough going. Like, yeah. Because I mean that 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 happens in Canto Four, so it happens after this. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about Canto Five. Which yes. so so for me, <laughs> Canto Five and Canto Thirty Four are my favorite cantos in the Inferno. Wonderful. But yes. I just I just love Paolo and Francesca, and um, I I just have always found them so endearing, so compelling. Um, I always found their particular contrapasso so apt and like mm-hmm. horrifying, and and I also love that when Dante so 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 a lot of people that Dante meets in Hell are, are people he knows. Everybody's yeah. Italian in Hell, right? <laughs> so, they're they're um, Italian or they're like mythic. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. He meets Paolo and Francesca, and he's completely, like, drawn into them. And then at the end, he passes out. Like, he's Mm -hmm. so upset by what has happened to them that he just, it's too much, he passes out. So it's interesting to me to think about um, why that is. But just briefly, you know, Paolo and Francesca. So Francesca is married to... Yeah, they're in-laws. Their in-laws? So this is her yeah. brother-in-law? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so Keeping basically, 
<laughs> so basically they're like they're reading some love poetry together yeah. and they just kind of they get swept they get carried away they get carried mm-hmm. away you know it's it's some great poetry and um and they kiss and um her husband i forget her husband's name what's her husband's uh, name he is i i do not believe that he is mentioned by name okay. in this photo so, so yeah he shows up later on because he, he murders yes. Paolo. <laughs> but mm-hmm. but the husband sort of whatever interrupts them in their embrace mm-hmm. and he he kills Paolo and just francesca just how does how does she die actually well, so none of that is actually revealed in this canto. So that's all material that is that is extra uh, extra canonical, if we can use that that word. That's a, a biography for Francesca that I think Boccaccio provides, maybe. Yeah. Um, well, there's a lot of paintings about Paolo. Yeah, there's a lot of paintings yeah. and amazing ones too. Yeah. So. What we know is that Francesca and Paolo are together. We know that Dante would have known Francesca. She's the aunt of somebody that housed him in his exile, mm-hmm. which is not necessarily the best way of returning hospitality. Uh, but we know that she is offended by how her beautiful body was ripped away from her. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much what we we know about her death. And so, so, so anyway, they're, they're lovers who get caught and then they, they, they somehow die in the, in the heat of passion. Right. And yeah. So if you, if you look around line, I guess it's one thirty. time and again, our eyes were brought together by the book we read, our faces flushed and paled to the moment of one line alone, we yielded. It was when we read about those longed-for lips now being kissed by such a famous lover, and this one, mm-hmm. who shall never leave my side, then kissed my mouth and trembled as he did. And then she's like, look, we read no further. And and their, their, their condition in hell, I'll let you describe it, but, it, sure. but it's meant to mirror their sin. Yes. So we are in the circle of lust. And the the punishment or the contrapasso for lust, these punishments are are not just meant to punish, but they're also meant to reveal the nature of the sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, so their contrapasso is they're blown about in a tempest, an eternal tempest of wind. And so Dante is is here with Virgil, and he's just seeing all of these souls blown across the sky by this relentless wind and and Francesco, Francesca and Paolo are together somehow in this tempest. And Dante calls them down and they, they come to him descending on the wings of doves, as Dante says. And then Francesca tells her her very sad story. I think what's so interesting about this canto is actually how it starts. Mm-hmm. So it starts with a utterly grotesque scene where Dante sees the judge of hell, King Minos. Mm-hmm. And every soul has to stand before King Minos, and King Minos judges them, wraps this kind of serpent's tail around him, and they get, I almost think it's almost Monty Python-like, they get lifted up and thrown down into their circle of hell. But so it starts with this confession scene. Mm-hmm. And then we, like a grotesque confession. And then we get Francesca's confession scene. Mm-hmm. except it is 
I've offered some half-hearted confessions in my life, sadly, but this is perhaps the least genuine confession you could yeah. possibly get. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of the, manipulative. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely manipulative, right? She she is presenting herself precisely the way that Guido Cavalcanti presented love mm-hmm. in in his his poetry. Love overtakes and controls you. And what are you? You are just the helpless victim of love. She does not really take any ownership. You know? Not at all. Yeah. And in f- fact, she changes the story. So they're reading the story of uh, Queen Guinevere's affair mm-hmm. with Lancelot. Mm-hmm. And the version that she's reading, Guinevere is the seductress, but she presents it as Galahad is the one that brings them together. Mm-hmm. And so yes. she's changing the story yeah. here. But if, could we look at a, a couple of other lines here? Sure, Would that yeah. be okay? Yeah, absolutely. So this is Francesca's famous speech. It starts around line 100. And so she's, she's saying this to Dante. Love, quick to kindle in the gentle heart, seized this one for the beauty of my body torn from me. How it happens still offends me. Love, that excuses no one loved from loving, seized me so strongly with delight in him that, as you see, he never leaves my side. Love, led us straight to sudden death together. Yeah. And so you get that threefold invocation of love, but it's it's this kind of hellish trinity of love, love, love. And Francesca is presenting herself as a victim of mm-hmm. this love god. Mm-hmm. He excuses no one loved from loving. If you're struck by love, mm-hmm. all you can do is submit to it. Right. Um, yeah. And she definitely, you know, she doesn't want to take responsibility. But I also find it interesting that, you know, in some sense, she got what she wanted. You know, she's forever absolutely. with Paolo now, but it's like a nightmare. <laughs> right. <laughs> they don't because really Paolo, seem happy together. <laughs> no, because Paolo is just like crying the whole time. He's utterly mute. Uh, Paolo is really the passive figure here mm-hmm. in this entire story. He's just crying. So I always read read Francesca's, as you can see, he never leaves my side. It's like they've been in a pandemic quarantine together yeah. for, for eternity. Um, <laughs> um yeah, so so they're together, but it's not I mean they're together, but they're together in this frenzied Yes. you know, state and they're, and they're not really together. Right. It's sort Absolutely. of like, it's almost like being in the same room, but never quite being able right. to be together in the relevant sense. Yeah. There's, there's no intimacy. There's no, no. intimacy here at, at all. And that's yeah. kind of Dante's hell is you get what you want, but you yeah. get, you get what it really is. That's right. Not the way that you kind of deceive yourself into thinking about That's it. right. You get the reality because of course, every sinful desire is self-deceived in some sense. Right. You know, it's a, it's right. a merely apparent good because it's, it's somehow disordered and it's somehow self-defeating. De- and so, so really what you're getting in hell is the truth of your own mm-hmm. desire. But I was always so struck by Ta- by Dante's reaction. So she's mm-hmm. like, look, we read no further, you know, that was it. And, yeah. and it says, and all the while the one of the two spirits spoke these words, the other wept in such a way that pity blurred my senses. I swooned as though to die and fell to hell's floor as a body dead falls. 
I mean, he's just literally so overcome with pity for them. And that always struck me because that's what I felt as a reader. I was just right. like, man, this is terrible. And, and it's also interesting because there's a sense in which we're supposed to think it's the wrong reaction. If it really is about truth and justice, then it shouldn't make you faint. But I think there are several senses in which Dante is implicating himself in Absolutely. this canto. So there's, I think that it's, I think one of the reasons why he's so upset is that what causes them to be damned and some the, the, the proximate cause, I guess, of their damnation is love poetry, which exactly. Dante writes. So that's right? pretty heavy. <laughs> like, oh and my God, what am I doing to people? <laughs> Yes. And in fact, line 100 is a quote from Dante's earlier work ah, and good. his his school, the love quick to kindle in a gentle heart. That's a direct quote from one of Dante's poems and uh, one of his friend Guido Guinizelli's poems. So Francesca knows just what she's doing. Yeah. Here. Yeah. And so, so he, you know, maybe he's feeling like guilty or like somehow Absolutely. he's... Yeah. He's making people fall with his poetry. So it's one of those um, instances of like one of my favorite themes of literature, which is the dangers of reading. <laughs> so this is one of like the most famous dangers yeah. of passages, right. which I think are really rich and for me, um, especially complicated because I think reading should make you a better person. So what do I do with these right. dangers of reading questions? But also I think the fact that he passes out cold is an indication that he's got a lot of work to do spiritually because mm -hmm. if he were in a better condition, he would see this for what it is rather right. than being overcome by pity. Right. right. Um, and so there's also a contrast here between kind of like where Dante is in the beginning, you know, this is really like the top floors of hell and where he is at the end um, in terms of interacting with the people. Yeah. Know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, Dante is, I think, doing a couple of, of pretty impressive things here. It starts off with this scene of confession, and then you get Francesca who refuses to confess, right? right? She's deflecting, deflecting. But then on a kind of meta level that I think you're, you're talking about, uh, Dante himself is confessing, right? Dante, the poet mm -hmm. is confessing. Mm -hmm. And so there's that that kind of fascinating interplay on your whole uh, the dangers of reading. This is also a total riff off of Confessions, Book Eight. Okay, say more, say more. And and Augustine's conversion in the garden. What is Augustine doing? He's reading a book mm -hmm. in a garden. Mm -hmm. He's reading a book authored by a guy named Paolo or Paul, the Apostle Paul. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That day he also reads no more. Mm -hmm. And so there is this kind of, I mean, I'm going to project onto the text a little bit here, but there is this kind of happy interplay between what's happening in the text and then what's happening outside of the, the text. So here, Francesca and Paolo read to their damnation. Yeah. But they still recognize that that texts are meant to be performed. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. but you can perform text to your salvation or your damnation. And so Augustine is kind of the counter, counter argument. Augustine reads Romans to his salvation. 
to overcoming his lust, right? Mm -hmm. so finally surrendering his lust and his will right. to God. And so then I think it becomes a, a question to us as readers. All right, we're reading this book, The Inferno. Are we going to read it to our damnation or our salvation? Right. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I think there's there's a lot to what you're saying about the, the the theology and philosophy of reading going on here. Yeah, I mean, there's really so much in in Canto Five. Yeah, it, it's it's definitely one of one of my favorites for that reason. Okay, but for purposes of time, we have to skip all the way to Canto Twenty Six. So you chose Canto Twenty Six, and you said um, it's it's really important to understanding the whole thing. And I've never heard anyone say that. So I'm now very curious about your line okay. on, on, on Canto 26. Why is it so okay. central? Yeah. So I think this, in Canto 26, we meet the character of Ulysses or Odysseus. Mm -hmm. And Dante changes Odysseus's story. And Odysseus is, is all about getting home. Yes. Getting back to, to his wife, his father. And his son, mm -hmm. the great rooted bed, all of that. Mm -hmm. Dante says, nah. And he gives uh, Odysseus a kind of tragic end mm -hmm. that he hears about in this canto. That Odysseus became uh, filled with, a, with another kind of lust, but it was a, a lust for glory. Mm. And he sets out with his men again to explore the unknown regions of the world to go beyond the boundaries of that the gods have set mm -hmm. and explore the world and he meets his his end just as he comes within uh sight of the island of purgatory the mountain of purgatory uh god intervenes and sinks his ship mm -hmm. and he he dies a a kind of anonymous death at sea the reason why I would say uh, Ulysses is so important for the comedy as a whole is because Ulysses is is kind of the infernal form of Dante himself. I think Ulysses stands as as the constant temptation of what Dante himself can become because he invokes Ulysses throughout the poem. Mm -hmm. He revisits this theme. So Ulysses is uh, a, a rhetorician. He uses language to inflame the, the hearts and the imaginations of his men to lead them on this journey to transgress the boundaries of, to transgress the boundaries of, of God. Uh, but he's also a, a metaphysician. He wants to go out and he wants to explore and know all that human beings can know. And so he, he uses language and rhetoric to recruit people on this. The famous line is the transgression of the bounds, the mm -hmm. transgression of the boundaries to go beyond what is afforded to human beings. Is that sort of like go beyond the pillar of Hercules? It's absolutely yeah. go beyond the pillar of Hercules. Yeah. yeah. And the reason why I think this is so iconic is because when Dante meets Adam, in Paradiso 26, mm -hmm. so you get these two 26s that mm -hmm. are in conversation with each other. Adam describes his sin and all sin as transgression of the bounds, mm -hmm. transgression of the boundaries that God set up. So Ulysses is kind of iconic for Dante's understanding of what sin is, and it's iconic of how Dante himself can kind of go wrong. 
-hmm. he is also a gifted rhetorician. And he is also trying to recruit his, his followers, his readers, to go on this journey beyond the boundaries of time and space into the very life of God. And so what he's trying to do, I think, is he's, throughout the comedy, is he's trying to say, Ulysses was doing this for his glory and for his pride, whereas I, Dante, I'm doing this out of humility and out of obedience. And so I think what, what Dante sees in, in Ulysses is all the ways that his project, his poetry could go bad. And it could be the kind of reading that leads people to, to damnation, to death, rather than to, to salvation. So the, we could get into all of the, the details of that, um, and that, that scene in Canto 26, um, but that's the overall. I, I'm yeah. just curious why he would choose the figure of Odysseus, who, by contrast with, I don't know, Achilles. <laughs> like, Odysseus is a good guy. You know, I he mean, is. Homer's Odysseus is a, is a good guy. Right. Um, he's a hero. And yes. um, so why would he want to single out someone for whom the someone, you know, for whom the pagans saw as a hero, is that a way of rebuking or is that a way of, I don't know, like, is that a way of rebuking the, the pagan poets or, or maybe um, putting a distance between himself and the pagan tradition that he sees himself as in some, some sense carrying forward? I mean, like why Odysseus as the, because if you wanted to think of like someone who was really proud I don't know. Why wouldn't you pick Achilles? There are other there, people. There are so many other people that you could pick. Um, so I do think that some of this might be some, some Greek versus Latin poetic traditions mm -hmm. going on here. Mm -hmm. uh, because it's not Dante the Pilgrim who speaks to Ulysses. It's Virgil. Virgil's the only one that can speak to Ulysses. And so mm -hmm. this might be uh, a little bit of a game that Dante's playing, a little joke that he's having um, mm -hmm. at uh, the Greek tradition's expense. But I wonder if, if more seriously, Dante is suggesting that pagan piety is, is not invulnerable to corruption. Mm-hmm. That it is not um, that it's not not going to be sufficient in itself. That it could just get uh, get twisted and and manipulated, or even even overwhelmed. Could the desire, the the proud desires, the the vain desires, the desires for one owns excellence, even get the the better of somebody as noble and as pious as Odysseus. Mm -hmm. Like we're pretty deep into hell here. And so Dante's showing just how corruptive and powerful sin can be. And so that's my read on it mm -hmm. is, is he's showing that, that these sins, the sins of, of fraud can corrupt even the most noble and heroic mm -hmm. possibly. Yeah. Yeah. But this is another one of those questions that just doesn't have a great answer. Uh-huh. 
That's interesting. I'll have to think about it more. I've, I've honestly never thought much about Canto 26. So, mm-hmm. so yeah. Um, and we'll come back to it when we're reading yeah. Paradiso. Yeah. But, um, but for now, we just got to keep burning right through this thing. <laughs> yeah. Or, or icing our way through. As That's right. Made. So one of the things that's almost a blessing of the fact that I was so poorly educated <laughs> for most of my life is that when I picked up the divine comedy, like I didn't have any preconceptions or okay. I, like yeah. I, there, there were no spoil, nobody spoiled it for me. I had no idea. And when I got yeah. to Canto 34, like, honestly, my mind was blown. I mean, mm-hmm. just, I, I was floored. It, it really, really, really shook me this figure of Satan and this idea of the deepest part of hell, not being this blazing inferno, which is what I thought it would be, but would be cold and that Satan would be frozen in Mm -hmm. ice. Mm -hmm. That's not the kind of Disney picture of the devil that I had in my head. And yeah, it really shook me. Yeah. Dante's Satan is not a powerful figure. Not at all. He's impotent. He's utterly impotent. And that just struck me so much. Yes, I a hundred percent agree with you. Uh, I had a very different experience when I first read this. Uh, I I was disappointed. Oh <laughs> because we just came off of the totally gnarly scene in Canto 33 where you have Count Ugolino eating another guy's face for all eternity. And yeah, I, you know, I read this when I, when I was 19. I was like, that is awesome. And then I got to Satan, and Satan is like stuck in the ice in mm-hmm. a kind of like parody of, of Christ rising from the tomb. Mm-hmm. And he's beating his wings and crying. Mm-hmm. And there's like blood going down his cheeks. He's massive, mm-hmm. but he is, as you said, utterly impotent. Mm-hmm. And desperately pathetic yeah i was like i i thought we were gearing up for like the confrontation with a powerful king of hell i mean that's how the canto begins it's Mm -hmm. like behold the king of hell but it's really significant that the king of hell is pathetic and powerless it's absolutely right it's brilliant it's brilliantly done um and once I was no longer 19, I could see that. I could see that, oh, Dante was going for something different than just a cool scene. Mm-hmm. He's actually making a statement of like, no, this is the final apocalypse of evil. Mm-hmm. Evil at its end is not romantic like Francesca. It's not heroic like Ulysses. It's not gnarly and grotesque like Ugolino. It is sa- a sad and pathetic parody of the good yeah and i think it's significant to note that that satan has has three faces he's a kind of twisted parody of the trinity mm-hmm. uh he has wings is a twisted parody of of uh the seraphim it's a really what dante's final apocalypse of evil is is that evil is just a kind of parasite on the good mm-hmm. and a yeah. sad one at that you know, when I, when I first read the divine comedy, I was a pagan and yeah, it was, it was just definitely one of those texts that pushed me in a different, (laughs) in a very different direction because that, that, that image 
because again, you know, you're sort of raised on this image of the devil, which I, I didn't believe in, you know, I, I was raised in a totally secular house. I didn't believe right. that the devil existed, but the devil is like sexy and cool and powerful exactly. and, and right. even funny, like, you know, like he's a cool yeah. guy. And he's he, Milton Satan. That's right. He is Milton Satan. And I didn't come to see that later. I didn't know that my Satan was Milton Satan because I hadn't read mm -hmm. Milton because again, you know, I'm a stupid American, right. but, right. but like, you know, this, like, like this guy locked eternally in ice, that scared me. You know, mm -hmm. I was like, that's not attractive. No, it's not. Um, and also it seemed apt. It seemed really, really apt, you know, because I had, um, I had studied Augustine on the problem of evil. It was, it was one of the first bits of philosophy that I, that I ever read was like Augustine on evil. And I thought, I thought, you know, that's, if there's a solution to this, it's gotta be something like that. Right. <laughs> you know, exactly. that evil is a, is a, is a privation. Um, that's not something real that that's something that seemed, um, really right to me. Like it was, it was sort of like one of the first, like just really profound insights, you know, like, mm -hmm. like that seems true. That never occurred to me, but yeah, that seems really, really correct. But you know, Augustine gives it to you at the, at the level of philosophy and, and reason. Exactly. And then, and then, but Dante is giving you this vision of it where it's just so clear that it's just defect. You know, it's, it's just defect. I think Canto 34 is... I mean, it's just, it's it's just stunning. It's stunning and it and it's powerful and I and I think it's a little scary. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it's also hilarious <laughs> in some ways, though, isn't it? Because you start and and Virgil is is or Dante is saying like Satan's forearm is the size of a giant. Yeah, he's and, really I mean, big. He's just, he's just massive. Yeah, and then it ends with Dante and Virgil literally turning satan into a stepladder to yeah. get out of hell like they, that's right if the climb climb down the hairs of satan's inner thigh i mean yep. it's the most ridiculous thing and and i i absolutely love that that dante's philosophy or dante's theology is not just that evil is desperate and pathetic and parasitic of the good but he gives us an image that evil is defeated to such an extent that it becomes, it itself becomes the way out of hell. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so there's that wonderful moment. And uh, in case, just to make sure we're on the, the same page, right, Satan is stuck at the equator. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. So top half of him is on one, one hemisphere and the bottom half is in another hemisphere. Mm -hmm. And so when Dante and Virgil are climbing down Satan's body. His backside, hell, right? I mean, they're yeah. climbing down his butt. Yeah, it's so absurd. <laughs> but they cross the equator. And so there's yeah. this wonderful moment of there's a literal conversion. Yeah. As they make their, their way out. And and so first of all, my students are always like, I thought the medievals thought the world was flat. I'm like, no. No, they didn't. Yeah, maybe not. Uh, but but this idea that that evil is pathetic and defeated, I think, is is really quite wonderful. So they climb down him. They go through like a 
I don't know, like a little hole or something mm -hmm. and they're out of hell. And then, you know, I saw the lovely things, the heavens hold, and we came out to see once more the stars, right? So once they're out of hell, um, they, they can see the sky again. So anyway, I hope that's enough to whet everyone's appetite. I'm going to have to save this for uh, one of the next two episodes, but we're going to have you okay. back. So it's going to be okay. perfect. And I'm excited to talk about purgatory. Uh, yes, but for now, I, I just it. I just want to thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy and theology podcast that is generously underwritten by the Institute of Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America and produced by Catholics for Hire, a group of young Catholic digital content freelancers. You can subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes or on the Apple ACM. And you can also follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at EudaimoniaPod. And we're also over on Facebook at Sacred and Profane Love. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support us on Patreon. Go to www.patreon.com slash EudaimoniaPod. As always, I'd like to thank our most recent patrons for their monthly support. My deepest gratitude goes to... Samantha Schroeder, Tommy Collison, Jessica Gottlieb, Jonathan Mueller, David Manuel, Jim Francisco, Eric Adler, Kevin Swan, Brian Griffin, and Juanita and Jeremy Stevens. For our next episode, I'll be joined by the editor of The Point magazine, John Baskin, to discuss David Foster Wallace and the prospects for philosophical literary criticism. Until then, friends, be well and keep reading.